This is the big question where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Joanna, Caleb F., Amara, Caleb J., and Benton. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. This time, both of our questions have to do with a mysterious Old Testament figure named Melchizedek. First, Joanna asks, How did people like Melchizedek become priests before Levi or his descendants were born? Well, since both of our serious questions are about Melchizedek, we should start by laying a foundation, and then we can answer the question, who was Melchizedek? Now, the Bible only mentions Melchizedek in three places, in Genesis 14, later in Psalm 110, and then finally in Hebrews chapter 7. Now, in Genesis 14, Melchizedek is described as the king of Salem, which becomes Jerusalem in time. He's also described as a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek meets Abraham after Abraham has won a great victory, and Melchizedek does two things. First, he brings bread and wine to Abraham, and then he gives Abraham a blessing. And in return, Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth, or tithe, of everything that he was blessed with in the battle. Now, there's no explanation or history given about Melchizedek in Genesis, And he's not even mentioned again until Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. In other words, it's a psalm about the anointed one or Messiah who God is sending to save his people. In Psalm 110, it says that the Messiah will be a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, what does that mean? Well, Hebrews 7 explains it. If you look in Hebrews 7, it says that Jesus is our great high priest, and that he's not a priest from the line of Levi. He goes back farther than Levi to the line of Melchizedek, so that he's a better priest than the priests of Levi. He comes from the line that Abraham himself gave honor to. We don't know exactly how Melchizedek came to be a priest any more than we know how he came to be a king. But his significance in Scripture is the way that he pictures for us what Christ will be. Jesus is a priest king whose work for us is better than the Levitical system with its priests and its over and over again sacrifices. Now Caleb F. asks, When Abraham gave one-tenth of his plunder to Melchizedek, was it the first tithe? Well, Caleb, great question. Everything that's mentioned in Genesis 14, if you think about it, has a worship significance to it. Melchizedek gives a blessing to Abraham. He serves him bread and wine. This makes us think of the blessing that we receive in a worship service and, of course, of the Lord's table. Now, Abraham's tithe, giving a tenth of his gains to the priest, that too is an act of worship, just like our gifts that we give to God in worship. And yes, the tithe of Abraham does seem to be the first mention in the Bible of a tithe being given. 
The next one comes all the way in Genesis 28, where Jacob pledges at Bethel to give God a tenth of everything that God blesses him with. Now, just because this is the first mention doesn't mean that it's the first time that the practice was established. It may be that tithing was already understood as a form of worship before Abraham's day, or at least during Abraham's day. Genesis 14 doesn't say, and Abraham did something that had never been done before. And I suspect that by then it was already an established part of worship. But the earliest that we can trace it back with certainty would be Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek. And now it's time for the big question. This time our big question comes from Amara, so let's give her a round of applause. Here's Amara's question. If we are created in God's image and he is perfect, then why do we sin? Amara, this question touches on one of the most important things a Christian needs to know about human nature. And it's one of those things people outside the church tend to forget, assuming they ever knew it. Here it is. The way we are is not the way God made us. According to the Bible, something has happened that changes human nature itself so that you can never excuse the bad things you do by saying, hey, this is the way God made me. To understand the question, we need to do two things. First, we need to talk about what it means to say that human beings are made in God's image. What does it mean to bear God's image? Secondly, we have to look at what happened to change human nature and what that change means. Maybe the best explanation in Scripture of what it means to be made in God's image is found in the book of Job, in a description God himself gives of the way that he controls nature. In Job chapter 38, verse 14, God says, It is changed like clay under the seal. Now, this is a metaphor. It means that God has shaped the world the way a signet ring leaves its stamp on the wax. Now, you know from the seal who whatever has been sealed belongs to. That's especially true of human beings. We've been stamped out in God's image, which is why every human being, no matter what, is worthy of dignity and respect. But being made in God's image doesn't mean being exactly like God. What it means is bearing the stamp of God's ownership. When God made our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were made in his image, according to Genesis 1, verse 27. But this doesn't mean they were exactly like God. It means they were uniquely his. The Westminster Confession gives us a good description of what that meant for Adam and Eve. In chapter 9, section 2, the confession says that man, in his state of innocence, had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet mutably so that he might fall from it. In other words, Adam and Eve had the power to obey God's command, and if they had obeyed, they would have attained a reward. But they were also mutable, which means they could change. Now, the question is, what kind of change would it be to go from obeying God to not obeying? Well, we call that kind of change 
sin. So human beings were created with the ability to please God through obedience, but they were also capable of sin. And when they sinned, human nature changed. After the fall, they were no longer free the way they had been. Now human beings were snared by sin. A confession says that by falling into the state of sin, human beings have wholly lost all ability to will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. We are dead in sin and not able by our own strength to change that. So when we think about what it means to be human now, there are two basic facts to keep in mind. First, that all human beings are made in God's image. And second, that all human beings are sinful. Sin doesn't eradicate the image of God in us, but it does damage it so that we need God's grace to restore the image. If you keep all this in mind, you'll understand why Christians reject the idea that whatever is natural must be good. Since sin has distorted human nature, there is no such thing as natural innocence. We cannot say, I was born this way, so it must be right. We cannot say, this is how God made me, so don't judge. Our sin is not how God made us. It's a corruption of how God made us. But the only way to restore ourselves is through God's grace. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Caleb J., who asks, What is your favorite movie? Well, Caleb, for years, I used to answer this question one way, but now I answer it differently because I discovered a new favorite movie. My old favorite movie was called Breaker Morant, which is about some Australian soldiers in the Boer War in the early 1900s who are put on trial, accused of assassinating a local missionary. Now, that sounds fun, doesn't it? <laughs> but my new favorite movie is called Ikiru, which is Japanese. The word means to live, and the whole movie is about what it means to live. In this movie, a man who's spent his whole life working in the city bureaucracy finds out that he's dying of stomach cancer and decides to do everything he can before he dies to turn some swampland into a public park. Now that sounds exciting, I know, but one of these days you'll be able to watch it and you'll see that it's actually pretty good. And now Benton asks, where's your favorite place to hang out? Well, Benton, everyone knows the best place to hang out is at church. That's why after services, adults like to stick around and talk while the kids run wild. But if I can't hang out at church, then my second choice would be a bookstore, which isn't so easy anymore because there aren't as many bookstores as there used to be. 30 years ago, I used to hang out at a place called the Alabama Bookstop, which was an old movie theater converted into a bookstore. I also have fond memories of other bookstore hangouts like the Dietering Book Gallery, which had an upper room full of precious leather-bound books, or Chautauqua Books in Jackson, Mississippi, where the owner would hand out flashlights because half the bulbs in the store had burned out. But if you can't hang out at church or at a bookstore, then a coffee shop is a good place to hang out. In fact, coffee shops are where you're most likely to bump into me out and about just hanging out.
That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.